Welcome to this message from Journey Church. Our hope is that you'd encounter God and His purpose for your journey. Be sure to visit us online at www.journeykc.com. I have um, two additional announcements that uh, Sean doesn't know about. Uh, One is, but I have the microphone, right, so I can do that. So the first one is, um, I taught in December on the subject of planned neglect. Anybody remember that? Oh, that's good. Okay, three. So uh, I'm glad that was really impressive. Uh, But uh, I mentioned that we had three grandchildren, and now we have four. I don't know how you guys get pictures of my grandchildren, but uh, there she is, Liliana, Elizabeth, and I think there's one more maybe. Okay, I have to get you on my side one way or another. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're really blessed. And um, the, our youngest, Micah, and his wife, Ashley, had Liliana on January 21st. So um, we've been down there and planning on going again. Uh, second, as Sean alluded to, um, we have been here for about a year now. We started visiting last spring. and. You know, after being a pastor for 40 years and going and looking for a church is really a weird thing. And some of you understand that because maybe you've had, you know, a year or two years or something and you're looking for a church. But 40 years and to go out and to, you know, what's out there (laughs) is really, really strange. And we are so thankful. And I want to say that to you. Thank you. Uh, for welcoming us into the fellowship uh, a year ago and continually, and especially I want to thank uh, Pastor Sean and Becca for your hospitality and your fellowship, and Pastor Aaron and Sarah. Um, thank you all, because it's, it's so great to have a place of acceptance and a place where you're respected, and you can use your gifts. So I think that's a place uh, for all of us, and we're especially grateful to you. All right, I'm glad I didn't get emotional there, because now I have to teach. Well, I want to talk to you today. I'm getting a lot of feedback up here, by the way, Um, Leonard. Uh, I want to talk to you today about the subject of discouragement. And my message is entitled, I Will Not Come Down to Discouragement. In the fourth chapter of Nehemiah, we see that he faced many prospects for discouragement. And we all face that temptation to be discouraged, especially after we've gone through a disappointment of significance and or a series of disappointments. We can get lured into that position, that spiritual, emotional locale of discouragement. And Nehemiah faced this, as I mentioned, and we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 4 here momentarily. But first of all, let me introduce it by saying that Nehemiah was a Jew who was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in Persia. And he was very grieved when he heard that the walls around Jerusalem, the holy city of his people, were demolished. And so he went to the king and asked for permission if he could go to Jerusalem and rebuild those walls. He received permission, 
and he went out to this monumental task of rebuilding the walls. And as he did, um, he was not only um, providing a defense, that wall to protect the people, but he also was running into enemies. And so we're going to talk about those enemies as we pick up in chapter 4 and see how Nehemiah did not come down to discouragement. So Nehemiah chapter 4, it's rather long, so put your seatbelt on. Here you go. When Sambale heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria. And he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite was at his side and said, what are they building? Even a fox climbed on it. He would break down their wall of stones. Nehemiah spoke. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until it reached about half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalai, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs on Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said this, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see it, we'll be right there among them and kill them and put an end to this work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work, and half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I said to the people, have every man and helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can give us guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor my guards ever took off our clothes. Each had his weapon 
even when he went for water. If you've been in a difficult situation, just imagine Nehemiah. Here we see he faced four circumstantial temptations to discouragement. The first one, the questions of the people, verse 1 through 5. Sarcastic, negative questions. Will they finish in a day? Can these stones be brought back to life? Questions like this can stop a person before they ever get started in doing something for God. The questions of men. Therefore, we must be careful what we listen to and who we listen to. People, pessimism, and devil doubts attempt to rob us of our future. Has that happened to you? People, pessimism, producing devil doubts, attempts to rob us of our future. In 1985, I was told by my pastor and my best friend at that time that my teaching gift was not good enough for anyone except a small group, and my leadership gift was not strong enough to help lead a congregation. The devil wanted to steal my future. So I went into my basement and prayed. I went to my office at the church building and prayed. I went into the backyard and vividly remember sitting out there with my head in my hands, praying and asking God, who am I? Is this me? Is this pessimism and these doubts? Does this constitute me? Does this define me? Who am I, Lord, in you? Ask yourself that question. Who am I, Lord, in you? And when I asked the Lord that question, I got a different answer. Nine months later, Bev and I, under God's initiative, moved to Liberty, and we began a church with four people and very, very, very little money. We couldn't buy groceries, for example. We ate hot dogs, essentially, um, most every supper. We had pantry weeks, where all you could eat was what was left in the pantry. It was a test. Who am I, Lord, in you? Well, I'll tell you, over the years, hundreds of people came to know Jesus Christ. Thousands of people over the years were equipped for ministry and deployed to do what God had put in them. Because God had impressed on me who I was, and he wanted me to give away to others who they were in God. And so we had people ministering all over the congregation. We had uh, young people going out to become worship pastors, uh, associate pastors, youth pastors, so on and so on around the country. And we had people going uh, into the nations, the last of which was a family of four, a commission to go to Turkey for seven years to plant a church. This is just a small sampling, but the question is, how did this happen? How did this happen in the face of people pessimism and devil doubts? 
It's very simple. I prayed, and I listened to God. God told me who I was in him, and I agreed with him. And I said, I'm not coming down to that discouragement. Prayer turns the questions of men into the answers of God. If you ever wondered whether prayer is worthwhile, (laughs) um, because I know that a lot of people tend to um, put prayer in the category of, you know, listing the things that you need from the Lord that day and then going on your way. That's not really prayer. Uh, And this is not a message on prayer, so I'm not going to go further. But if you've ever wondered if prayer is worthwhile, remember that statement. Prayer turns the questions of men into the answers of God. When people question you, God will give you the answer. Nehemiah certainly did not come down to the questions of men. Instead, in verse 4, he prayed, Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. He prayed and he was not discouraged. I was born and raised in uh, Pennsylvania and of course there's a lot of history, uh, American history there. Um, And I remember as a kid, we would travel a couple hours southeast to Gettysburg where the Civil War uh, had a pivotal point in the Battle of Gettysburg. If you know your history, you know, Robert E. Lee entered Pennsylvania, which was pretty far north for the Confederacy, took over uh, some towns on the Susquehanna River where my hometown is located, um, and they were uh, about to take over the capital, Harrisburg, and this, this, was, this was the critical point for slavery to be eliminated in the United States. And they came to Gettysburg. Robert E. Lee with 76,000 soldiers, the Union Army, some of them were just running away. They were so scared. President Lincoln was talking with a wounded general, comforting him. And during this time of pessimism and, and doubting whether the Union could stand up in this war, Lincoln wrote later, I went to my room and prayed. I got on my knees before Almighty God, and soon the sweet comfort came over me that God Almighty had everything in his hands. People, pessimism, and devil doubts were defeated through prayer. Through prayer. The second temptation that Nehemiah faced that could have moved him from disappointment, disappointment obvious with everything happening around him here, to lure him into discouragement was the halfway point. Nehemiah and his workers experienced more resistance as that wall rose to half its intended height. His questions were more furious and they plotted now even more seriously. So in verse 9, he posted a guard day and night. What was he saying? He's saying, I will not come down to discouragement. I will not come down from the wall of God's purpose. 
I will not come down from the wall of God's assignment in my life. I will not come down from who God said I am. I will not come down from God's will. He stayed on the wall. Will we allow ourselves when we get to a certain point? You know, you plow through something, a situation, maybe it's a a short-term or maybe it's a long-term situation, challenge. Will we allow ourselves to forge through only to the halfway point and then stop because the challenge intensifies? The enemy comes against us even more. Something is going on. We may not even understand it, but we are being enticed to discouragement. Nehemiah said, no, I will not come down. Oftentimes, that halfway point, I think, is a delay. It's a delay. And a delay may feel like a setback because we may be progressing through something and suddenly there's like this plateau or fork in the road or really big speed bump or whatever. And at that point, we need to decide whether we're going to quit or whether we're going to proceed. I believe that you're... Delay may sometimes feel like a setback, but your comeback can be greater than your setback. Your comeback can be greater than your setback. Take hope. God is not done with you at the halfway point. Look at what he's already done. Will we allow delay of circumstance or delay of progress to move us to delay of obedience? Because we get at that halfway point and there's a delay, then it's easy in the flesh to back down and delay our obedience if God asks us to do something because we're not seeing the progress we saw before, right? Nehemiah said no to his enemies. He was not going to delay. Why? Because oppositional circumstance becomes a landmark or a landmine. When you come up against certain opposition, it's it's one of those draw a line in the sand moments. Is it a landmark for you? Or is it a landmine for you? You get to choose. You get to choose whether you're going to go forward. I have a, what I think is a little humorous uh, short video um, to share with you where a little boy teaches us uh, this lesson. Could you watch it here with me? Hitter 
Strike one. I'm the greatest hitter in the world! Strike two. I love that commercial that was on TV five years ago or whenever. That always ministers to me. <laughs> and maybe you've seen it as well, but it really capsulizes what I'm saying here. The critical theme is that disappointment occurs based on circumstance, but discouragement occurs based on choice. I have to say it again because it is, it, it is the crux of the message. Disappointment occurs based on circumstance, but discouragement occurs based on choice. See, the boy, the little boy was disappointed. He, he wanted to be this great hitter, and he threw the ball up, and he missed it three times in a row. He was disappointed. You saw that look on his face. But then, after he swung and missed three times, he wasn't discouraged because he's made a choice. I'm the best pitcher in the world. He wouldn't quit. What counts most is not what happens to you, but what happens in you. I think uh, Pastor Sean has, has uh, made that point very clear for you, uh, at least over the year that we've been here. It's what happens in you. One of the most dramatic stories that I've ever read that's, that's true, and there's a, a, a book or more than one book about it, is um, related to Dr. Viktor Frankl, a Jewish psychiatrist during World War II in Germany. He was imprisoned by the Nazis. They killed his wife. They killed his children. They killed his parents. Obviously, they took him away from his good profession. And they stripped him of his clothes in front of the Gestapo. They had him put out his left hand, and as they began to cut away his wedding band, Dr. Frankel said this to himself. He said, you can take away my wife. You can take away my children. You can take away my parents. You can take away my job. You can take away my home. You can take away my profession. But there's one thing nobody can ever take away from me, and that's the freedom to choose how I will react to what happens to me. Whew. No wonder he served the other prisoners over and over again. No wonder he survived death camp and went on to write and to serve thousands and thousands untold people. 
The third temptation Nehemiah experienced was fatigue. Fatigue can take us from disappointment into discouragement if we so choose. Notice in verse 10, the strength of the laborers is giving out. Here's another lesson from Nehemiah. And maybe I hit on this uh, in terms of the uh, planned neglect message that three of you remember. Uh, just kidding. I know it was four. Uh, fatigue is not a mandate to stop your work. It's a message to pace your work. You can apply that to your career. You can apply that to work at home, family, hobbies, um, ministry, any arena. And this is what they did as they completed the wall. In verses 13 to 17, they reorganized, they reprioritized, and Nehemiah said, I'm, I'm taking a stance. I'm going to stay on course. I'm not going to let things go haywire here. I am not giving up. I am not giving in to the power of fatigue. This was a great leader. He said, I'm not going down to discouragement, and my people are not going down to discouragement. Realistically, if you don't manage fatigue, fatigue will manage you. And I know this very well because I had a few times in my life where I experienced burnout. If you don't manage fatigue, it will manage you. Consider the prophet Elijah. He was beyond tired from numerous disappointments. First of all, Jezebel and Ahab, the wicked leaders of Israel, didn't like Elijah. And they wanted him out of the way. God said, I want you, Elijah, to go to the brook and hide. Go to the ravine. And there God fed him with ravens and water from the brook. However, the brook dried up. What's up? Disappointment number one. Then God told him, there's a widow in Zarephath, and if you go to this particular woman, she's going to provide for you. So he went, he obeyed again, and he got there, and he met the woman and found that she was destitute like many widows in that day, and she was getting ready to partake of her last meal with her son and die because she was destitute and starved. Disappointment number two. After Elijah performed a miracle with a jar of flour and a jug of oil and, they, and had food, something else happened. The widow's son died. Disappointment number three. He raised the son from the dead, but the widow, the widow blamed him for the death. Disappointment number four. Wow. And although the prophet raised him from the dead, disappointment number five was on the horizon. Remember the story where Elijah confronted the 450 prophets of Baal and he defeated them and killed them? However, when Jezebel found out, she commanded Elijah's death. And this is where it really gets intense. And he starts to run. And he is already exhausted from these series of events. And now he becomes thoroughly exhausted spiritually, emotionally, and physically. 
and he gets into the desert. He goes to a certain tree. He sits under it, and he prays, 1 Kings 19.4, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. Maybe the greatest prophet ever praying a prayer of suicide? You see how disappointments can morph into extreme discouragement. But then he did something really positive spiritually. He went to sleep. Did you know the most spiritual thing you can do when you're extremely tired is sleep? And so he got up after he went to sleep and he ate. And then he went back to sleep. And then he got up and he ate. And through this pattern, he regained his equilibrium and was able to go on. Fatigue causes so many things. Anxiety, irritability, depression, panic attacks, headaches, dizziness, slowed responses, mood swings, low motivation, memory loss, poor concentration, and reduced immunities. That was really encouraging, wasn't it? (laughs) That's what you came to hear today. The good news, Nehemiah did not acquiesce to fatigue. He learned to manage fatigue. He didn't let it manage him. And that's what I want for you when you feel fatigue, is to learn to manage it. In this case, he deployed people, he delegated people, and he organized to the point where he would not continue in that mode or his people would not continue in fatigue. And so the wall of God's purpose rose higher and higher and higher. The fourth and last temptation to discouragement is verse 12 through 14, and that's fear. It got to the point where Nehemiah's opponents outrightly threatened just to pick them off the wall. Fear is an historical problem for those who want to do God's will, but there is a cost. There is a cost. And I don't know if it's every time, but it seems like every time or almost every time there is a cost. And that's not bad. Nehemiah did not shrink back from the cost. In verse 14, he urged the wall builders to trust God. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. No matter how close we are to discouragement, when we remember God, when we remember how awesome he is, how powerful he is, how great he is, how good he is, how faithful he is, it brings everything into perspective. Trust diffuses the power of fear. 
There's just those times when we, we, we must say, we must decide, we must choose. I'm going to trust the Lord right now. I'm going to trust the Lord right this moment in this situation. I will not fear for my God is great and awesome. Bev and I have a friend who's 52 years old. She's single. She was a basketball coach at Central Missouri um, way back. And she commuted to uh, our church from Warrensburg for church and small group. I mean, talk about commitment and so on and so on. And um, about 1990, we helped launch her ministry because she said that she wanted to reach people in China through basketball. And I hope that she can come here someday just to tell you the stories that will blow you away. At any rate, what happened is that from the ground up, she has now reached, in the last uh, five, ten years, the most elite athletes in the world, Olympic athletes from China. Not just the basketball players, but she's gotten inside the Olympic village and she has reached speed skaters, soccer players, softball players from China. And guess what? Every opponent that plays China, she gets to reach. Russians, North Koreans, and so on. It's amazing what, what God has done in her life. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about our friend. She's had significant health issues to the point where she had to come back to the United States for various specialized treatments from time to time. Not only that, at 52 years of age, she's always wanted to be married. Huge disappointment. She wanted a partner in ministry. Plus, she must deal with the fear of being found out that she is a Christian in what she's doing and being arrested, possibly beaten, and certainly imprisoned. Fear doesn't affect her. Because she joyfully and eagerly evangelizes these athletes And then she develops Bible studies in their dorms. I just have so much joy just thinking about that and the stories that she has shared with us. Like her, we need to continually put our trust in the Lord when fear is around us and trying to press in and affect us. Now, of course, Christians in China have to deal with this, and they take great precautions. When a church gets to 10 or 15 people, they will split in half to avoid attention. And secondly, um, they, they can't really let people know, you know where they're meeting, and, so, and also because their phone lines are monitored. And so they have a person out on the street who's designated as the volunteer 
to pass by sometime before the next meeting to find out where it is. One man was the volunteer on the street, was found out, arrested, beaten, incarcerated. And then his replacement had the same experience. Someone said to the pastor, I suppose you have great difficulty filling that position. And the pastor said, actually, no, we have a waiting list. A waiting list. From Christians in China, we learn to forge through fear with trust. The devil may be coming at us. He may be monitoring us. He may be trying to listen in. But trust is the answer. The Apostle Paul demonstrated this time and again. On one occasion, he wrote to the Corinthians, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships that we suffered in the province of Asia. We are under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we felt in our hearts the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Do you see it? But this happened, this disappointment, this hardship, this difficulty, this adversity, this Speed bump, this delay, it happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Trust. Paul had external pressures. He, he felt internal human limitations. He had the threat of death on his life. But all these things happened that he might trust they didn't happen just so he could be disappointed. And they certainly did not happen to pull him down into discouragement. They happened that he would not rely on himself, but trust in the Lord. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. If you know about him, he wrote uh, the, the famous Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. My favorite book that he wrote, I don't like the, um, whatever it's called, fiction um, I like things that are true. <laughs> um, but uh, my favorite book that he wrote is Mere Christianity. I can read that probably every week um, and not get bored. He wrote this statement, If Satan's arsenal of weapons were restricted to a single one, it would be discouragement. Now, th this, is, this is a scholar this is a devoted Christian. This is, this is a man who knew God in, in great depth. And he knew how badly Satan wants to discourage Christians. Why? Because every time we make that choice to trust God in any given situation, it's a death blow to our pride. And let me explain this. This is, this is, very, this is very important here as we close. Every time we make a decision to trust God and not rely on ourselves, it's a death blow to pride. Follow me. Pride wants a smooth ride. 
I, I want a smooth ride, I'll tell you. I'll just admit it. I'm prideful. I like a smooth ride through life. I don't want difficulties. I don't want resistance. I don't want opposition. I don't want criticism. I don't want any of that stuff. I just want a smooth ride. And so, when we get to that point, after a few disappointments, and we start to move into discouragement, you know what's going on? Our pride has been hurt. Because we find out, once again, we are not in charge. We are not the one who controls the universe. There is a God, and he's not me. It's a death blow to pride. Mother Teresa said it more profoundly than I. If you are discouraged, it is a sign of pride because it shows you trust in your own powers. Wow. Please don't rely on yourself when disappointments come and fall into discouragement through pride. Let disappointments lead you to trust humbly in your great and awesome God. The worship team and Prayer team, come up, please. I invite you this morning to trust at a new level. Really, all the things that Nehemiah did were about trust. His prayer, the way that he went about the work on the wall. I invite you to trust at a new level like Nehemiah, whose wall rose to that height and the purpose of God was fulfilled. And say with the people of Scripture, like Paul and Nehemiah, I will not come down to discouragement. You can make that resolve today. Whether it's something that's happened today, last week, last month, last year, maybe 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, to make that resolve, I will not come down to discouragement in this situation I'm going to trust in the Lord because this is exactly the spiritual purpose of that disappointment is to pull me closer and closer in faith to my great and awesome God. You can do that at your seat or come up and pray with those up front. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. For more information about Journey Church or to browse our media library, visit us online at journeykc.com.